Aristotle wrote that a whole is what has a beginning, a middle, and an end. He was writing that in terms of a drama. A drama is whole when it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We know the beginning and the end of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, verse 3, this was our beginning. Uh, Verse 2, actually. Chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, our professor. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He really hammers the theme of his course into our hearts. And we, coming from the nurture of Lady Wisdom, were sorely underprepared for this sinister (laughs) professor. And he goes through, and you've been here for five weeks now, and you've heard what he has to say. And then he closes tonight in 12 verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So giving us a nice little bookend to his lectures is the summary. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's our beginning. That's our end. But what about the middle? What do we do with the middle? And at this moment, we got to ask ourselves, we see how Ecclesiastes begins, we see how it ends, but what do we do in between? Your life begins in vanity. Actually, 11 verse 10 says that, that uh, no, uh, uh, the dawn at the end there, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The dawn of life is vanity. Why? You're born outside Eden. You're born outside of the purpose for which God has made us. And the end of our lives, so far as we can see, without any intervention or help, is vanity. Because for dust, from dust you were made, and to dust you shall return. He said that earlier in the book. That's vanity. That is vanity. The beginning and the end. But what shall we do with our little life here in the middle, in the midst of vanity? And you go through Ecclesiastes and you can get jaded. You can get this sense of, ah, this is so pessimistic. This is so negative. There's nothing good here. But if you've been with us and tracking and listening carefully, you know that that's not true. That the the professor gives us so much hope. As you will hear once again, he's going to say a theme that he said five times and now the sixth time tonight. So you should probably know what that is coming up. Um, But here's what we do with the middle. Here's what he's going to tell us to do. Chapter 12, verse 13 to 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Even professors come to their conclusions. (laughs) And long-winded pastors. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments before your life unravels. Ready for it? In old age. Here we go. All right. So this vanity can jade us, can make us pessimistic. It can make us those grumpy old men on the porch yelling at everyone who steps foot within an inch of their lawn. Not that we have lawns up here, but, you know, that's a typical vision that we get. Um, 
So he wants to conclude with this warning about becoming grumpy old people. But before we do that, we need to understand that he is not putting a number on old age. And I don't want you, and I don't want to, and I don't do this. I don't put a number on old age. In fact, I am astounded how many times somebody asks me, how old is Pastor Mike? Or how old is your grandmother? And I'm always like, north of 70? I don't know. Like, that's all, I don't know what that is anymore. To me, old age is not a number. It's a numbness to the good things that God gives us. We become old, decrepit, and crabby when we are numbed to the goodness of God's creation and what he's doing in our lives around us. That's not a number. It doesn't ma- you can be 107 and still be living in the goodness of the Lord. You could be 27 and be an old, crabby woman. Or man, I was just picking on men earlier. So age is not a number, it's a numbness. Um, But he does not deny that, yes, old age comes with its disadvantages. East of Eden, old age looks like this. Look at 12 verse 3. Uh, 12 verse 3, he says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed, Anybody relating to this? Are you, are you feeling your back a little stooped or the windows you're looking out of are not as clean as they used to be? I don't mean your home windows. That's not what he means. And the doors, verse 4, on the street are shut when just walking outside in the snow is dangerous to your life because a fall is not as forgiving as it was when you were four. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, you're terrified. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. You know, your leaves up top are getting white. The grasshopper drags itself along. Our feet don't quite pick up the way they used to. And desire fails. Uh, when Moses died, by the way, it said that he was still full of sap in the Hebrew. That means, like, fertility. But desire fails this side of east of Eden. Your desire fails. You, you wither in reproductive sense. Um, because man is going to his eternal home, death, and mourners go about the streets. Verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all his vanities. So he's got these images of um, a pitcher holds water, right? That's life. What happens when the pitcher cracks? The life drains out. Or when you're holding something up by a cord and the cord snaps, the thing crashes and it breaks. This is life. It's breaking down. So yes, old age is real and he talks about that. But right before it, he talks also about the young. And what are the characteristics of the young? And hear this, please. If you maintain these characteristics he's about to talk about, rejoicing in the goodness of God and remembering your creator, 
you will have a young soul despite the aging of the body. That's what we're going after. East of Eden, we don't have to be crabby and grumpy. We can celebrate the goodness that God has given us in this earth. So here we go. 11 verse 7, starting at the top. 11 verse 7. Why, you might say, did we stop last week at 11.6 and start at 11.7? As you know, chapter breaks aren't always where they should be. Um, And as best as I could see, every, like, 9 out of 10 commentators broke it up at 11.6 and 11.7. They said 11.7 starts the conclusion. So I am going with them and saying he's beginning his conclusion here in the smack dab middle of chapter 11. And he says this to us. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Notice he didn't just say rejoice in the young years when things are great. And then when things start to hurt and you see the world is being passed on to the next generation worse than you received it, do not get crabby. He says rejoice all your days. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. So when your spouse gets dementia, bless them, or uh, rejoice in them all. And God have mercy on Shirley and Gus, because she is living that now. Let uh, rejoice in them all. But, verse 8 still, let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So rejoice. Rejoice. That's what you have. This is what the young heart, the young soul, not an age number, but an unnumbed soul that is still open to the goodness of God and the gifts he's given us in his lives rejoices all the days of their life. That is what a youthful, energetic soul does. It rejoices. Now, you know by now that this is the sixth time in these lectures that he has told us to rejoice, to be glad, to receive your food and your wine and to dress yourself well because these are God's gifts to us. That's what he's been telling us in the midst of all this vanity. He will always break in each section we've looked at. He will always break and say, but eat and drink and be merry for this is God's gift to us. And please remember, he's not saying go and party like there's no tomorrow. Go and waste yourself on the pleasures of this life because people who do that say that's all there is outside of my pleasure. There is nothing Therefore, I give myself to it because this is the highest good and the greatest God in my life. Rather, our professor is saying, go and enjoy the gifts of God because that is what there is. It's not all that there is, but in the midst of this bizarre world, this world going downhill fast, and in the midst of trying to carve out an existence east of Eden, we still have echoes of Eden that he gives us, the goodness of his creation. And worship to God is tapping into these, receiving them, because worship is always receiving from God. It is never what we fabricate or what we bring to the table. Worship is always what he gives us, and it's when we receive it with gratitude that we glorify him. 
That's what he has been saying through this book, and that's what he's saying here. Rejoice, because this will keep your soul young and forever relevant. When you can no longer be hip, be a sage. You will always be relevant as a Christian in this world if we understand the call to rejoice in God's goodness now uttered six times. Check out this. In... um, Oh, verse 9, we'd stop there. He said, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Two ways you could read that. What does he mean by he'll bring us into judgment? One, it could be, uh, okay, so you got all these good things. Go and rejoice and enjoy life. But remember, God's watching. Now, if you've got this lusty heart, that might be exactly how you're going to read that. Woo, freedom, go enjoy life. Oh, but God's watching. I better do it well. Uh, more likely is that what he's saying here is rather go and rejoice, enjoy the life God has given you. Because if you don't, remember that he will hold you accountable for how you didn't receive what he's given you. That's the judgment he's warning us against. Rejoice, because this is a command. You know what Paul said, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, are you sure? And again, I say, thank you. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 as well. You may, it's one of those obscure sections of the Bible because it's where Moses is reading the blessings when they keep the law and all the curses that will happen when they don't keep the law. Listen to this little nugget in the middle of it. This is Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. He says, Because you, Israel, did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because you did not serve him with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, So he's given you all these things, and you did not serve him with joyness and gladness of heart. So because you failed to do that, he then says, Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. That's judgment when we fail to live rejoicing in what he's giving us. You see, our refusal to see that, though, is what makes us soul old. It's what makes us stooped over and crabby and saying, there's nothing good in the dust around here. Well, yes, look up. Don't have the old soul that stooped down, but look up and receive from our Father. We can get so fed by the news today that we can become crabby Republicans and hateful Democrats. And you can flip that, of course, the other way too. Um, You could become these things, but... We must remember, as Ecclesiastes has been showing us, that in the midst of the craziness of life outside of Eden, there's goodness all around us. The Christians sniff it out. The Christians seize it. They claim it as theirs. Because our God is the creator. I love this story I stumbled upon. I'm just going to quote it in full. You guys know John Stott? He was a great preacher. I think he was British. I'm not entirely sure. So shout out to our British friends. Um, John Stott said this, and I really resonated with this. Um, so this is in a biography about him, and it's about one of his assistants. This is the account of John Stott's assistant. His assistant said, Every afternoon at 4.30 p.m., I bring Uncle John a cup of coffee. Rather late for caffeine, but okay. <laughs> as soon, I know, I'm getting old, right? As soon as I set the cup on his desk, he almost always says, somewhat playfully, I am not worthy, usually without moving his head from his papers. 
One afternoon last week, I felt that it was particularly silly for him to equate worthiness with a cup of coffee. When he said, I am not worthy, I responded, sure you are. After a few minutes, he said, you haven't got your theology of grace right. I shot back. It's only a cup of coffee, Uncle John. And as we went, as I went into his kitchen and began putting things away, I heard him mutter, still with his head bowed to his papers, it's just the thin end of the wedge. What does he mean by that? Just the thin end of the wedge. Ingratitude. Not being thankful and receiving God's gifts with gratitude is that thin end of the wedge that as it goes in further, it drives things apart more and more. Ingratitude is that thin end of the wedge. Now this resonated with me because I would never, I would have been like this assistant. This is not to say, oh, hell me, I got my view right. Like this is very new for me. That's pathetic saying I've walked with Christ like most of my life. Um, I finally can resonate with this because when I have, when I practice a fast on a certain day, uh, it's the next day. When I have, I drink tea, so excuse me, but when I have my caffeine in the morning, I am so grateful. I literally say, as it's brewing, thank you for this tea, Lord, because I have learned gratitude by certain disciplines like fasting. And that's just one, that's just like how it resonated with me. It might hit us in different ways. Um, Rejoice, rejoice, that will keep your soul young. Um, Also, remember your creator. This is chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And then we read the rest in the day when the keepers watch and you, you see descriptions of old age. Remember your creator. Specifically in our youth, it's really important for us to remember our creator because there are two halves to life which we don't talk enough about in America. Most societies, ancient-wise, understood this because they had initiation ceremonies when you moved from youth to adulthood and even from adulthood to elderhood. There were stages in life, which in America, we kind of just float and we, and we lose relevance. We don't know what we're here for anymore. Well, here's what you're here for. Two phases of life. Our first phase is to build our house upon the rock. This is why he says, remember your creator in your youth. He made you. He made the universe in such a way that it's going to work when you go this way. So build your life upon his principles and upon his teachings. That's the first stage of life. That's the first task of every human is to know who their creator is and to submit their lives to his creatorship, if you can invent that word with me. That's our first task in life. Only after we are well-founded and the house is structured with all of the rules of gravity and physics that need to be in place to have a strong and sturdy house, only then are we able to move in and enjoy the fruits thereof. And once the house is built and firm because we have founded our lives upon his teachings, then we can move in. And that's the second phase of life. Now you're playing host to everyone else in their first phase of life. And you're showing them what a well-built house looks like. And you're giving to them with generosity because you are not the old soul. You're the young one that's rejoicing and remembering your creator. Second half of life is necessary. Now again, that's not a number. 
we don't know. The second half of life is whenever your house is built upon the rock of Christ. I think I've still got a lot I'm building. But here's what James Russell Miller, he was a Presbyterian in the 19th century. Here's what he said. This was beautiful. The old man, like the snail, carries his house on his back. He may change his neighbors or houses or scenes or companions, but he cannot get away from himself and his own past. Sinful years put thorns in the pillow on which the head of age rests. Lives of passion and evil store away bitter fountains from which the old man has to drink. So here we go. Grumpy old people, of soul at least, are those who never built the first half of life well. So now they're laying down on a bed of thorns, and they've got terrible, horrible, torturous pictures on the walls. Their house is dark with no windows, and the tap, well, if you live in running uh, in Twin Peaks, you will understand this one, but your tap is unsafe to drink. Um, that's recent, anyways. That's why he's asking us to remember our creator in the days of our youth so that we can move on to the second half of life, teaching others to rejoice and remember their creator. Now, not to name numbers, number numbers, mention numbers. Let's say you are in the upper escalon of whatever is upper, and you haven't built the first part of your life well. What do you do? Today's your youth. Today you're starting over. That's why it's so great to know when your baptism is or your salvation is because that is when you're spiritually born again. You started over. And if it was at 50, great, great. So 50 to whatever, these are your, this is now your new first half of life. Let's build the house. Let's found it well upon the principles. And then, and then we can move in and be hosts to others. So that's, that's the middle section. Like one of the things he's warning us about is, Beware of old age and don't become an old crabby soul. But that's not our whole duty. This was just his warnings to us. Now we get to, okay, there's vanity at the beginning. There's vanity at the end. But what about the middle? Don't suffer from old age. But do this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is great news because in this flurry of vanity and all of these descriptions of what we suffer through and go through, it can become, we can become so jaded, so confused. This incomprehensibility of life is suddenly, in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 12, it's suddenly distilled into simplicity. This incomprehensibility is this simplicity. This is it. Fear God and keep his commands. Because Why? Verse 13 says, this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty. What is your purpose? Fear God, keep his commands. What is your responsibility as a human? Fear God, keep his commands. So while colleges are important to choose, spouses are important to choose, um, whether or not to sell your home or to live up here or elsewhere, all that's important to choose. Is that your purpose? The whole duty of humanity outside of Eden, and I would even argue within Eden, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. What powerful, clear,
clarity and simplicity our professor gives us here at the end of this course, which could leave us so jaded. Four times, just to show you how, like, this is the ultimate mic drop, in other words. Four times he tells us this is everything. The Hebrew word kol, which means and, is used four times. It's right here in the end of the matter. We're back in verse 13, 12, 13. The end of the matter, all, that's kol, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole, kol, the whole duty of man. For God will bring every, kol, deep uh, deed into judgment with every, kol, secret thing, whether good or evil. (laughs) this is the bottom line this is the most important thing he's saying and i love how the message just basically simplified it when he said fear god and keep your commandments the message just says and that's it period mic drop that's that's what he's doing here this is the end this is the most important thing so let's look at it real quick the fear of god what are we talking what does he mean when he's inviting us to fear god and to keep his commandments if this is our whole duty let's make sure we understand what we mean by fear god keep his commandments fear god you might remember how lady wisdom began her courses with us proverbs 1 verse 7 the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction The fear of the Lord is where it starts. Our professor ends the fear of the Lord. We have have bookends between books. This is such a prevalent theme. Now, when we talk about fearing God, I understand it like this. It's a trembling respect, a trembling respect for God as creator and judge. He made me, therefore I tremble before him and respect him. And he will judge me. Therefore, I tremble before him and respect him. When he says, go right, I am going right. That's what fear means. Because he's my creator. I trust he knows why I need to go right. And he's my judge. If I go left, I will be responsible for that. Those who don't fear God don't live that way. Um, Maybe this will be helpful. If not, you can throw this out. Um, But think of your phobia or the phobia you had in your youth. Um, maybe this doesn't work for extreme phobias, but I had a mild case of arachnophobia in my youth. I mean, I still do. I can't tolerate spiders, and if it's in the room, it's got to die. I won't rest if it doesn't die, but I'm not to the degree I was in high school or in even elementary school. Um, boy, but I remember how um, spiders guided what I did. <laughs> Bedtime, you got to lift the sheets. You got to look around. Before the shoe goes on, you got to sh- make sure no one made a home in there over the night. Spiders guided what I did. Spiders also guided where I went. Hide and seek? You don't hide in those dark, dusty areas. If you can't see and you're not sure, when your dad tells you to go to the build up and get something, it is horror. That is the worst place for an arachnophobe. There, there are certain places spiders won't let you go. I once lived with, um, I once roomed with um, someone who used to be the chef here, and his house was not sprayed for pests. And this particular house had a horrid spider problem. So bad that when I moved in, the first thing I saw in the kitchen was the sink. And over the the sink dispenser was a full-on web blocking the whole dispenser with a big fat spider sitting on it. I thought, if he can build one there, 
where will they not be? And sure enough, as I lived, um, there were three behind the sofa when it was pulled out. Three, just right there. And sitting there, uh, working on my laptop, they would freak. It was not infrequent to have one crawling up your leg and you had to shake off. That was terrible for me. Anyways, um, all I say, like, it, it change, it psychologically messes with you. You cannot look at the chair the same again. You gotta, like, look underneath and make sure, like, am I safe to sit down? It changes what you do, where you go, and the way you think. Fear of God is not a phobia, let's be clear, but in the way that a phobia can affect my thinking and my approach to life, fear of God should do the same thing. It will affect, if I fear him as my judge and creator, it will affect what I do. It will affect where I go, and it will affect how I think. Not because I'm terrified of him, but because of my respect and my reverence for him. It doesn't destroy my life, fearing God. It's quite the opposite. It delights and directs my life. Look at verse uh, 9, just chapter 12, verse 9. This is part of his conclusion. 12, 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So like our professor went through all of this knowledge and distilled it for us, for this is what will give you delight. And direction, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Goads are like spears or staves with nails on them so that when you poke the animal, it goes where it should go. The words of the wise are like goads prodding us and like nails firmly fixed, nails that don't come out, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. He will direct us even through the valley of the shadow of death. He will direct us. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Fear God and keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Um, Keeping God's commandments is a result of fearing God. They go hand in hand. If I, I know I fear God if I keep his commandments. If I don't keep his commandments, I, I don't fear God. Deuteronomy 6, you guys might know the great commandment. Um, of course, we heard that at confession. Uh, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But you know what he says before that? He says this. This is the commandment of the Lord that he commands you that you do them in the land which you're going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God. How do you know you fear God? You do his commandments. Zach S. Wine said, The fear of God, to fear God, recognizes that all of this life under the sun has its end in him. And so do we. The one who does not fear God looks to other commands, other explanations, and other responses to the lots, seasons, and circumstances, and uses of our lives under the sun. God is the ultimate. He's the only end. That's what it means to fear him. So to keep, to fear him is to keep his commandments because he is the ultimate. You're not looking at any other commandments, not looking at any other advice. God is giving me all that I need to go forward. I love this idea that he's our end. To, to fear him and to keep his commandments means he's our end. We, we were told at the beginning of our book that vanity is the beginning. We're told at the end and the conclusion, vanity is the end. But wait a minute. 
Then we realize vanity doesn't actually get the last word. Fear God and keep his commandments gets the last word. And so our true end, the true end of our lives in Christ, the true end of our lives is not vanity, all is vanity, but it's glory. That's the true end. And this is why he asks us to fear God and keep his commandments. Not only is it a distillation of everything the Old Testament says, fear God and keep his commandments, because you do that, the whole law is perfected in you. Um, Not only that, but this is giving us the path that we need toward glory. From vanity to glory, when this becomes fearing God, keeping his commandments, when this becomes our whole duty, our whole duty, then our end is transformed from vanity to glory. But notice the whole duty of man. Do you think that fearing God and keeping his commandments is a part-time job? Do you think it's a full-time job? Not in the sense of 40 hours a week, it's not. With benefits, nope, not enough. (laughs) This is the whole duty. If you think about it, this occupies every moment of your life fearing God and keeping his commandments. This is your whole duty. And this is severe and heavy. Remember last week we said uh, the only thing more dangerous than death is your life? This is what he's saying. He's echoing this. Every moment is a path for either vanity or glory. Am I going to fear God or am I going to fear man? Am I going to fear God or am I going to fear the opinions of others? Am I going to fear God or am I going to fear the pleasures of this world? Am I going to keep his commandments or am I going to keep their commandments? Every day, every moment, we are at the crossroads of, will I fulfill my whole duty or will I do it part-time? So our end is glory. Christian, we need to know this. This is your destiny. In fact, the word predestined is used in the Bible because when you came to Christ, it was already determined where you will end. Every Christian will end in glory. That's what it means. Romans 8.29, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. No Christians excluded from that. That's your destiny. The image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. He didn't say, you're guiding some of God's glory. He said that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the same glory that we're beholding. That's phenomenal. What the New Testament is telling us and promising to us is that our destiny is more than we can ask for. Because we would never think to ask for God's glory. That's, That's beyond our capability, because we would rather say, I want a veg tonight. Like that's, that's like most of America's desire if it's given to them. Second Peter one chapter, second uh, Peter chapter one, verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his very Precious and great promises. Okay, why has he done all this? Two, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is our whole duty. We are going there, glory, 
So our whole duty is to figure God and keep his commandments. Yeah, but if I'm already going to get there, what's the point? Because the Bible then says that, yes, we see that God's energy is working in our lives to get us to glory, but this is conditioned upon my cooperation with his energy. My energy must meet his energy. It's called synergy, when two energies work together. This is how you make sense of this. Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What do you mean, work out my own salvation? I don't have to keep God's commandments because I'm saved by grace. But then he says, work out your own salvation. He's not telling us to work for your salvation. Work it out. If our destiny is glory, work the glory of God in us, out in our lives, by what we do, think, and say. That's what fearing God and keeping his commandments leads us down, further down the path of glorification, so that his divine nature becomes eminent in our lives. This is what work out your salvation with fear. You know, it's the consistency here. And trembling means work it out. Keep his commandments. Fear him. Ephesians 2, verse 8, you know this one very well. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. We often stop there. But then, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created to do good works. And Christ said, at the end of the Beatitudes, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works, keeping his commandments, fearing him. These are our path toward his glory being revealed one degree to another in our lives. Um, So you were created for good works, to finish, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what we're doing. We are not working our way out of hell and into heaven. That is dumb. That doesn't work. And that's juvenile. Christians are called way past that. We are working so that the likeness of Christ can come out in our lives and deeds. That's why we're called to good works. Do you want to share in the divine nature? Or do you want to be a mere human say about that the vanity of life which we'd broken down he had said it's the brevity of life so we're anxious it's the uncertainty of life so we seek certainty in things that actually don't give us certainty remember that's that's really in a sum what he says in the two halves of this book well now we can look at this and we can hear the professor say Friend, in Christ, the brevity of life is eternity. In Christ, the uncertainty of life is the certainty of partaking in the divine nature. This is why it's our whole duty to fear God and keep his commandments. Because sin is the problem in my life. I am not saved from hell, though that's true. I am saved from hell. But what Christ saved me for is to get me to stop sinning and to participate in his life. So fear God. Keep his commandments. Why go back to Egypt? Keep on going. And we will see uh, in the vanity around us, the true community of God's people 
bringing pieces of the Eden to come here now in this world. In a world full of bad news, we don't have good news. We are good news. That's what we're being called to be. Be the good news by rejoicing and remembering your creator, fearing God and keeping his commandments. All glory and honor and praise be to the Father and to the Son.